There should be some Bibles around you if you want to grab one or you can swipe open your phone. We're in the book of James and we are in this series, we're in week 11 in this series called The Awakening and as you guys are flipping open your phone or whatever, getting your Bibles out, uh, the words will be up on the screen if you need them too. Um, So as you're getting there, there's something you need to know about James. James is like the book of James, the writer of the book of James, James. He's like a doctor of the heart. And not the physical heart, but the way that the Bible refers to the heart is the seat of your thinking, your acting, and your feeling. The heart is like a control center. It is like a throne, and whatever sits upon that throne or whatever is behind those controls, the control center, controls the way you think, the way you feel, and the way that you act. And James is like a doctor that is checking your health, seeing what is behind the control center, what is sitting upon the throne of your heart. Because whatever sits upon the throne of your heart is the God of your life. And James is is helping us see the areas of our life where we are not putting God as the king, as the one who is in control, the one who sits behind the control center. So it's helpful to compare James to the writer Paul. So Paul is kind of like this lawyer or this judge that sits in the courtroom. And what he's doing there is he's advocating for us and he's reminding us, hey, you, you have sinned, but Christ has come and he's lived a perfect life, and he's traded records with you, and he's given you the record of his perfect life well lived, and he's taken your record of sin, and he's put it upon himself upon the cross. And in other words, the verdict is in. You are no longer guilty, but innocent. All is well. You're free. And Paul is stressing that. But James says, okay, well, how are you going to live now that you're out of the courtroom? How are you going to live now this life of freedom? And he says, let's look at your life and see if you really do believe that you've been forgiven. Is there guilt? Is there shame that is plaguing your life? And are you living in such a way that God is behind the control center of your heart? And so James is diagnosing us like a good doctor would. And when we come to Dr. James today, he gives us three laws that help us assess as to whether or not God is really the king of our heart. So he's, he's and, and well, he's the kind of doctor that you don't go to, but he goes to you. And he watches you out in the world so he could get a real diagnosis of what's going on in your heart. And so let's see how we stack up. James 2. Verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment 
is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. All right, there are three laws here that James uses to diagnose our heart. The first law is the royal law. Second is the indivisible law. And the third law is the law of liberty. So first, the royal law. The royal law means this is coming straight from the king. So I want you to imagine yourself, you're out on a battlefield, and you're in the trenches, and someone crawls up beside you, and you look over in shock, because it's the king. What is the king doing out on the battlefield next to you? Why has he crawled up next to you? Because he has to remind you of something. He has to give you a command. He's got to tell you your mission. In other words, a royal law is a law that comes right from the king. It has power because it's coming from the king, but it also has intimacy because it's coming straight from the king to you. In other words, this is very important. And so he gives us this royal law, which is his mantra. It means it's the way he would have you live. It's your mission in the world. It's his anthem. It's his slogan. This law or this mantra, or this way that you need to be living, what is it? What does he tell you when he crawls up beside you out on the battlefield? He tells you to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, just as he has loved you, just as he has come for you, just as he has loved you exactly the way that you wanted him to love you, because he is the very definition of love, he's the ultimate portrayal of love, so he comes and loves you exactly the way that you would want to be loved. But then... He says, now go and love others as you would have them love you. So if you want to know if you're living a good life, answer this question. Am I loving people in my life as I love myself? Now there's a common saying here where people start saying, well, I don't know if I really love myself that well, so maybe I just need to work on loving myself first. That's a great thing to say. And Great, do that. However, that is not at all what James is saying. When James says this, he's speaking about an action. He's speaking about compassion towards others, but the same that you would have towards yourself. In other words, if you are thirsty, you're going to care for yourself and get yourself some water. If you're hungry, you're going to fix yourself a nice meal. If you're sleepy, you're going to find yourself a bed. This is about action towards yourself that you should have towards others. It's about care and it's about compassion. So then the question becomes, well, who is your neighbor? Because he says, love your neighbor as yourself. This same question is asked to Jesus, and here is how he answers. He tells the story of a good Samaritan who comes to the aid of a Jewish man. Now, Samaritans and Jews did not get along very well, especially the Jews had very ill feelings towards the Samaritans. They were like a half-breed of their religion. And so Jesus says, essentially there's a, well, I'll just read it to you. Someone says, well, how do I love my neighbor? A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, this is a Jewish man, and he fell among robbers, the Jewish man did, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest, who would have also been a Jew, was going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, also a Jewish man, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, 
not a Jew, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. Jesus believes that anyone who comes to you in need is your neighbor. Now think back to being on the battlefield. Imagine your side is winning, you're in the trenches, and it's time for you to go jump up to the next spot. And so you go when you run up to the next trench. And as you jump down in, you find laying beside you is a wounded enemy soldier. What should you do? Just as the Good Samaritan did. The Good Samaritan was commanded by the king to love. Now, in Christianity, every enemy is a potential neighbor or brother or sister in Christ. That is why Jesus says, love your enemy. You know that he died for you while you were still his enemy, while you were combating against him, while you were fighting him, while you were on the other side of the army against him. He was on your side fighting for you and dying for you while you were still making yourself out to be his enemy in order to make you his friend. You're, and now, well, that means everybody who also has, wasn't his enemy, who was his enemy that now becomes his friend is now your brother or sister in Christ. And so you say, whoa, that really complicates things for this man out in the battlefield. And it does, because love will complicate everything. Love is always clear and uncomplicated until it comes into a world that has rejected the God of love. When you reject the God of love, that means you reject love because God is love. So, when love comes into a world that has rejected it, it causes some major disruption, and it complicates everything around it. Its love is like a boulder that is dropped into a, a very still lake. And as it falls in, it causes waves, and it causes ripples, and it causes a grand commotion to be disrupted throughout this whole entire lake. So Jesus says, love your enemy. Jesus says, love your enemy, and our world has a hard time loving those who are on the opposite side of their political party. Jesus says, love your enemy, and the church in the world today has a hard time loving those who believe differently than them in their denomination or belief system or theological system. Jesus says, love your enemy, and we have a hard time showing those who accidentally cut us off on the way here. Happened to someone today, sounds like. Jesus says, love your enemy, and we have a hard time showing love to our friends who don't love us perfectly. So we have a little pity party about it. Jesus says, love your enemy, and we have a hard time being patient with our kids, but love is patient. Jesus says, love your enemy, and we have a hard time loving our spouse who said something that made us upset. Meanwhile, we don't realize two days ago we said something that made them upset, and that's why they're doing that. 
How do we get the strength to love this way? Because love is complicated. It complicates everything. So how do we get the strength and the power? Well, it's found in the word royal. It's the royal law. So he is the king. And the king has come with power and with wisdom. And if your heart is like a throne or a control center, and God, the king, who is love, sits upon that throne or that control center, then he is your power to love in the way you ought to love and the wisdom to know how to love. If you put Christ on the throne of your heart, when you fall down in that battlefield next to an enemy soldier, you will know just how you should respond because you have his wisdom ruling you. If life doesn't seem complicated in the way that you love people, then it could either be that it, Christ is ruling the throne of your heart so well that you are acting just as he would act in every single situation. Now, I don't know if you feel that way, but I very rarely feel that I'm loving the way Christ, ought to, Christ is telling me I to love people. Or, if things seem so uncomplicated to you, then it could be that in that moment Christ is not ruling the throne of your heart. God is love. And if we reject the God of love, which all of us have, because every time you sin, it's a rejection of him and his love, then we see we are living in a way that is not loving. So then when that love comes into our life, it complicates it. So let's say this. You have certain views of, of life. You're very passionate about those views. You think everybody should adopt these views, and those people who do not adopt these views, well, they become a bit of your enemy. You start fighting them more and more. And then something happens. You have a kid, and your kid grows up. And guess what? They don't adopt your views. So what are you going to do? Are they going to remain your enemy, or are they going to remain your kid? Well, you see, love complicates things. Imagine if God rejected us because we don't adopt the same exact thing that he adopts as truth and the way we ought to live and live that way all of the time. Imagine if he rejected us for that. Well, we would be alone forever, cast away forever. But instead, we see that Christ came for us because he's loving Now, look, here's what happens. If you don't love that way, you are breaking the royal law of the king. And breaking one part of it means you break all of it. So this is our second law, the indivisible law. It means it can't be broken. It can't be part part make it this part, make it this part, make it this part. So James spoke of the sin of partiality a few verses earlier, and then he speaks of it in our verses today, and sandwiched in between the sin of partiality is the royal law of love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. The word partiality literally means to receive someone 
according to their face. It means you are judging their outward appearance and making an assessment of whether or not you're going to have favor on them based off of their wealth, their beauty, their success, or their status. And then it doesn't end there. Then you use that for your own gain. So here's how you know about the sin of partiality. You have something that you want desperately in life. Two people walk in a room. One person has everything that you need to be able to get what you want in life, and the other person has nothing. If you do not treat those two people exactly the same, you are committing the sin of partiality. This is the exact opposite of loving your neighbor as yourself. That's why it's sandwiched in between, because watch. When you love your neighbor as yourself, you are caring for them as you care for yourself. But when you sow the sin of partiality... You are wanting them to care for you and meet your needs, not you meeting their needs. So then James goes on to say that the sin of partiality is the same as the sin of adultery and as the sin of murder. And he says, it's scary, I know. If you break one part of it, you break the whole thing. So let's say you live your whole life perfectly. Let's just pretend you did. I know, crazy. Live it perfectly. The end of your life, well, throughout your life, there's been something you've been wanting so badly. Like a thing, and it was a good thing. Like you wanted a good thing, and you were chasing it your whole life. Desperate for it, but it never came. But then close to the end of your life, two people walk in a room, and one person can help you get everything you want. And the other can't. If you don't treat them the same, you have broken the whole entire law. You are done for, guilty. The verdict in the courtroom comes in and you are sentenced off to an eternity of hell. That's what James is saying. Outside of Christ. The royal law is indivisible. It can't be separated. You break one part, you break the whole thing. Why? Because... It's tyranny. Your throne, heart, is like a throne. And if Christ is not sitting upon that throne, then you have a king that's on there that does not belong there. And that is tyranny, because he is the rightful one, the rightful heir, the one who should be on that throne. So to remove him from it is to commit tyranny. If you have not loved your enemy perfectly, your spouse perfectly, your kids perfectly, your coworker perfectly, your enemy perfectly then you have broken the law and you are guilty. In the Old Testament, when the people of God finally arrive at the promised land, God tells them to do something. He says, you see these two mountains. So one mountain is called Mount Ebal and the other is Mount Gerizim. And what he says is you take these two mountains and he says, go up to one mountain, Mount Gerizim, and recite all of the blessings that come when you obey God. And then he says, take the other mountain, Mount Ebal, and on that mountain, go up that mountain and recite all the curses that would come if you disobey God. And so, I know, scary again. Magnolia? Yes, that's Magnolia. You look, so, so imagine the Jewish people. All day, they're staring up at these two mountains. Very clear. 
they are reminded constantly of the blessings that come by obedience and the curses that come by disobedience. And we have all broken the royal law. Therefore, we are all cursed. And our sins are a reminder every day of the mountain of curses that are before us. And gosh, you wonder why people are plagued with guilt. How can anyone not be? Even if you keep telling yourself over and over and over again, I'm a good person, deep down, everybody knows they have done wrong. And they feel the weight of it. They feel the shame, the guilt of it all. And they see that their destiny has caused, because of what they've done, they will one day be drug up this mountain of curses. Perfect timing again. Well, well, this kind of sucks. So is there any hope? Should we just go home? This would probably be a horrible place to stop this sermon. There is one hope, and it is the king who issued this royal law. He is our only hope. So this brings us to the law of liberty. What is this law of liberty? What is this law of freedom? And how in the world can a law give us freedom? Because typically we think of a law and we think, well, there's something I want to do and the law is telling me not to do it. So isn't that then an infringement on my freedom? Not with this law. So there are two aspects of this law that give you freedom. Freedom in the courtroom and freedom of the heart. So freedom of the courtroom says this. The king who required you to keep the law perfectly steps into this courtroom where you are and where the sentence is being issued guilty. The verdict is about to come in. You're about to hear the words, the words that you so desperately do not want to hear guilty. You don't want to hear these words and the judge is about to speak them. And just before he speaks these words, the king comes in. And he says, wait. I am standing in the place of this sinner. He doesn't hold back his words. He doesn't pull any punches. He calls you a sinner. But he's taking those sins from you. And so the verdict comes in. He could do this because he's the king. And so the judge says, okay. But, Right before you go free, the king says, but I need something from you. I need your heart. I need you to crown me. I need rule over your life. I need you to declare yourself mine as I'm declaring myself yours. And you're hesitant, but then you think, I would much rather be out in freedom living under his command than to be sentenced to an eternity of hell. So, you say, okay. And he is taken off into prison and you go free. This line about mercy and judgment. The mercy of the king swallows up his own judgment. It's not that the judgment is not issued. It's just redirected away from you. He trades places with you. That's the law of liberty. 
You're free. Legally, you are free. The verdict is in. There's nothing that can take that away from you. The law has said it. You are free. He is punished in your place. You are set free. So now you go out into freedom. Here's the second part, the freedom of the heart. Because you are hesitant to give him your heart. Because you wondered, is it worth it? You wondered if you would regret this decision. You wondered if you could trust him. You wondered if this all sounded way too good to be true. Maybe he thought it was a trick. But over time, right, because after you become a Christian, here's what starts happening to your heart. You become, you're battling with God. Like he says that, I am king. And you say, okay. And then you say, wait. And he says, no, I am king. And you say, uh, and you start backing away from it. And eventually what happens is you let him rule. And as you do, what you find is every time you do the things he tells you to do, you feel more free and more alive. Why? Because he is your creator, and he has designed you to live in a certain way. And when you live in line with the way he's taught, told, made, created you to live, you are most free. Before you listened to him, you were like a fish out of water, flopping around, looking ridiculous, looking, doing foolish things. But a fish is most free when it's in the water. And so when you listen to him, it's like you are a fish gliding through the water. Beautifully, effortlessly. The law of liberty states that you are free in the courtroom, the verdict is in, and you are most free when you let him rule your heart. And then you forget about it. You forget about your new record. And guilt and shame start plaguing your life. Guilt seems to own you. Shame makes you hang your head low. It's a plague. You've forgotten. And you're out in this world. And you're trying to obey him. But you keep messing up. It's like you don't have the power to do it. So what do you do? Well, you have to remember the battle. You have to remember when you were in the trenches. You have to remember before you met the king. Because once you've met him, he crawls up next to you and he says, love, love. And he teaches you how to live. He's the king of your heart. But before then, you've got to see something so important that you ran out in that battle and you jumped into a trench and there in the trench there was a wounded soldier it was him it was the king you were fighting him you were on the opposite side of him you were against him you were his enemy and the whole reason he was out on that battlefield was for you but you your bullet of sin is the one that pierced his side and caused him to fall. But he did it for you. He, the bullet was your bullet. And you were going to turn it on yourself. That's what sin is. Sin is suicide. But he went out and forced your hand and you pulled the trigger, and it went right at him, and it pierced him. 
and he laid there dead because of our sin. But he wanted to do it, to save you. He went out on the battlefield for you, and then he rose. And that's when he crawled up next to you and says, love as I have loved you. Let's pray. God, we don't have the power or the strength to live like you. And we need it from you. And so we pray now that we would crown you as our king. That this life of tyranny that we keep living, that we would leave it behind. And we would put you in your rightful place on the throne of our hearts so that you might rule over our thinking You might rule our feeling and you might rule the way that we live our lives. God, we know that we fought against you and we've made ourselves your enemy, but you have made us your friend. You've made us your brother and sister and now you have made us your sons and daughters and so we come to you reconciled, renewed, and we pray now that we would live as people who are free, hanging on every word that you have for us so that we might live in such a way that is free. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.